Uh, our scripture reader today is Patty Damiani, and she will be reading Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we've uh, been in a series in, in Romans 8, and, um, you know, uh, this, this uh, chapter touches on so many things, and uh, some of you may know, um, it, you know, one of the things that it helps us navigate is the, the journey of, of suffering and trying to navigate the world, and uh, some of you may know that this past Monday, uh, our, our beloved Ron Hackleman, uh, you know, Kathy's husband, went, went, went home to be with Jesus. And, um, and, you know, it's, uh, uh, the, the, I think I said this in a sermon not that long ago, but like Christians should be a, a sight to behold at, at funerals, uh, where on the one hand, we, we cry more because we know that death is not part of God's original plan um, and we should hate it. Uh, and then on the other hand, uh, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. And so there's a sense in which, oh, death, where is thy sting? And so uh, as we gather today, we just, you know, Kathy is uh, on our hearts, and, um, and we uh, love, love Ron. Um, he's such a, such a fun guy to be around, and uh, he, is, he is with Jesus now. And so if you, uh, if you know Kathy or you see her today, make sure to, to comfort her as she mourns the loss of her husband. Uh, and to be in the middle of Romans 8 uh, as, as she navigates that. And as you navigate your life, and as I navigate mine, uh, it is a a gift to be able to turn to these verses and to fight with them and to wrestle with them and to ask all the questions of them that this life makes you ask. And uh, throughout this series, you know, we've used this little subtitle, Exploring the Life and Love uh, that Jesus Offers. And, um, and, and kind of the, maybe another idea that we've associated here uh, is the author, Derek Thomas. When he talks about Romans 8, he says that Romans 8 shows us how the gospel brings us all the way home. And uh, over these, uh, these weeks, it's, it's been a, uh, an encouraging uh, journey to, to, to put, this, uh, put these verses, to put this, this, uh, this part of Scripture in, in, right in front of us as we, as we navigate the world. Uh, so we're coming to the end. Uh, where you can see the verses are Romans uh, 8, 31 through 39. And 39 is the last verse of, of this chapter. And so we are going to be uh, kind of in Romans 8 again next week. 
Um, but uh, today we're gonna, we are going to get all the way to the end uh, of these verses as well. And so if you look at Romans 8.31, uh, it says, What then shall we say to these things? Uh, you could re- translate another way. So what? So what? What, what, what should we say to these things? Um, Paul is the author of this letter to this church almost 2,000 years ago in Rome. And uh, throughout this letter, this glorious uh, 16 chapters, uh, we're in chapter 8. Three times before this, Paul has done something very, very similar to this phrase, so what? Uh, In chapter 6, verse 1, he does it. In chapter 6, verse 15, he does it. In chapter 7, verse 7, he does it. And in he's, his point in chapter 6 and 7 is he's like saying, what, what, so what then? I just, I just told you this stuff, so what? And in chapter 6, he's, he's really saying, uh, what should we say to this scandalous freedom that is declared in the gospel? And so in, in, in Romans chapter 5, he talks about how crazy the gospel is and that this grace that's been poured out upon you in Christ results in this, the, the Jesus taking your sin away. And so when he gets to chapter 6, he's like, so what then? What do we do with that? Should we keep on sinning that grace might abound? If the gospel is that crazy, should we respond to the gospel by, by, by allowing uh, like, you know, sin to continue in our life and just be like, um, I heard someone say this is a great relationship. Jesus likes to take sin away and I like to commit it. You know, is, is this what it's supposed to be? And Paul says, so what? No, that's not what it's supposed to be. And twice in chapter six and once in chapter seven, after saying pretty significant things, he says, so what then? What, what should we say about that? Well, as you come to verse 31 of chapter 8, he does it again. And he says, what should we say to these things? Well, let's remember what these things are. And if you've been here through the series, uh, this list is going to be, hopefully, become, uh, ha- has become quite familiar to you. But the storyline of the book of Romans could, could, be, uh, could be viewed from the perspective of this, this idea of rightness. That Paul is writing to this local church and he's wrestling with the idea of how is it that we can be right with God. And when you think about rightness or righteousness, sometimes it's easy to think of that word and think of it only in a moral sense. That it's righteous. Are you doing righteous things? Are you doing the good things? And, And righteousness does have that sense to it. But it also has a relational sense. In the sense of saying, are we right? Are we all right? Are we good? And so the word righteousness has both a moral and a relational component to it. And as Paul is writing this letter to this local church, he's wrestling with this, how is it you could be right with God? How is it that you can, how how could you be right with this holy God? If you have failed morally and your relationship has been broken, how is it that you could actually be declared right? And so just for shorthand, if we were trying to navigate our way through these first eight chapters, Here's a way that we could say it. Everybody needs to be made right. In Romans chapter 1, we find out that the world is broken and that sin has has contaminated us. That sin has separated us from God, and it's true for everybody. Everybody needs to be made right because no one is is right of themselves. So everybody needs to be made right. Romans 2, nobody can make themselves right, no matter how hard you work at it. In Romans chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to the Jewish people, and he says, you guys have the law of God, and it's really easy for you to think that because you have the law of God, you can like just obey, do all these good things, and that will make you good. It's not enough. No one can make themselves right. In chapter 3, we find that only Christ can make you right. 
In chapter 4, we find that only faith in Christ will make you right. So Christ can, but how do you get to be part of that? The Bible says through faith in Christ. In chapter 5, we find out that anyone can be made right. That he turns his uh, eye towards the first Adam who, who failed the test in the garden and, and did not obey God. And then the second Adam, Christ, who came and, and he aced the test. And, he, and, and through Adam's, the first Adam's uh, behaviors, the first Adam's work, he brought condemnation on the world. But through the second Adam, Christ, he brings righteousness. And anyone can be in. It's not reserved to one ethnic group. It's, it's open to all people. And then everyone who is made right is changed. And you can see that in Romans 6, 7, and 8. How is that displayed? Well, in chapter 6, we see that we're called to walk in this newness of life, that we've been raised to walk in a newness of life. In chapter 7, we find out that with all the complexities that go on inside of us, how, how, much, we are, uh, how, how much hypocrisy bubbles out of us, that if you, if you have put your faith in Christ, with all that, that, that internal conflict, Paul says, the real you is the you that wants to obey. So in chapter 7, he says, the things that I want to do are the things that I end up not doing. And the things that I don't want to do are the things that I end up doing. Uh, who, who am I? And Paul's answer is, if you've run to God in Christ, then the answer is, the real you is the one that wants to follow God. Chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, we find out that we are completely forgiven. No condemnation. Verses 1 through 11, we find out that we are spiritually awakened. That there's life inside of us. There's, there's something going on. The Spirit is at work in us in a way that he wasn't before. Verses 12 through 17, we find out that we are loved children of God. That we have a perfect older brother. We are heirs with Christ. And that we are part of a, a global family. Brothers and sisters all over this globe. Brothers and sisters who've died before us. Brothers and sisters who are yet to be born. This, this global spiritual family of all that God will gather together. And then most recently, in verses 18 through 30, we find out that we are offered these incredible resources, the resource of hope and the resource of the Spirit of God that help us to navigate the world. How, how, do, how do we endure our sufferings? Isn't that a good question? You look at verse 18. How, how do we make our way through this world with all of the sufferings? How in the world are we supposed to do that? Well, it, it's a good question. And some days it feels like we don't, I, I don't know the answer. Uh, but Paul is pointing the local church to this local church. And he says, the hope that you have of where this story is headed, that with all the train wreck garbage that we have to deal with here, that there is a hope for where the story is going. And then the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is at work in us in ways that we can't actually tell. The Spirit of God is taking our prayers and translating them, interpreting them, doing something with my prayers that are faulty. My prayers are often rooted in what I want. And the Spirit of God takes my prayers and the ways in which they're off-center, the way in which they do not align with the will of God, the Spirit takes my prayers and reinterprets them and lays them before the God of heaven. And so Paul says, don't underestimate those resources. Uh, they've been given to you and they are, they are, uh, they are uh, available to the children of God to navigate as they navigate the world. So what? So that's what Paul's saying. All that stuff, so what? If those things are true, so what? Well, here's what. This is the point of verses 31 through 39. And I'm going to treat these in kind of three groupings of questions. And as we look at these questions, you heard them read a moment ago. These questions, let's be honest, these questions by themselves 
are debatable. In, in, in other words, in a vacuum, in isolation, as standalones, I'm not sure what the answer to these questions are. If you just open up your Bible someday and just read Romans 8, 31 through 39, you might read some of these questions and be like, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. But don't miss the phrase, what should we say to these things? Paul is saying, if we rewind and look at what's unfolded here, if what Paul has said in Romans 1, 1 through chapter 8, verse 30, if that's true, then Paul has the audacity to actually indicate that these questions are rhetorical. You know, a rhetorical question is a question that's asked to make a point, not really to get an answer. It's more to make a point. Or it's asked as an assumed answer. Like, you don't actually need to say anything. The question, like, it, 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 in a sense, it points to the answer. The answer is assumed. And Paul's saying, if everything I just wrote is true, then these questions are rhetorical, if you, if you can believe it. It doesn't feel like it. Not in our, practical, not in our experience of, of life. But Paul says if Romans 1.1 through Romans 8.30 are true, then these are, these are rhetorical questions. Well, what are the questions? Here we go. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, if that is a standalone question, the, the answer is uh, how much time do you have? The answer is, uh, I can make a really, really long list. But the idea of this question is not if there are people against God and his children. The idea is, sure there are. There are absolutely people. But the point is, can they be against us? In, in other words, we have enemies, but they cannot stand. They cannot prevail. No one, no thing, like nothing can stand. This is Paul's idea. If God is for us, then who could ever stand against us? Who, who, could, ever, who could ever win that matchup? And Paul's point is, do you, do you see what I just said? There, there's no chance. Nothing physical, nothing supernatural, Nothing experiential, literally nothing. Now you might say, well, that's fine. But that presumes that God is actually for me. And I'm not so sure that God is actually for me. Do you, do you know what's happened to me? Do you know what happened to me when I was a child? Do you know what happened to me when I was in college? Do you know what happened to me last week? In other words, I can agree with this answer if God was actually for me, but I'm not so sure. Well, if you know anything about Paul's story, I think Paul would say to you, I feel your pain. P Paul has been into the deep end of the pool. Paul has been through the grinder. L look at Paul's story. Look at the ways that Paul has been treated. Look at what he has had to endure. And this is all after he became a follower of Jesus. Before he was a follower of Jesus, he was the one beating everybody up. He becomes a follower of Jesus, and it's like his life is full of hardship, full of suffering. Paul can feel your pain, but he actually does have an answer to that. He says, if you doubt that God is for you, look at verse 32. 
God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? And so Paul's point is this. I get it. I get it if you're doubting that God is for you. But would you take a look at his track record? Would you take a look at what he has done? If he has been willing to give up his only son and he gave him up for you, then don't you think he's going to give you all things? If, if, if we have a giver of gifts who gives a gift like that, that you can't top, it can't get better than that gift. It can't get more costly than that gift. And if God has done that, if he's that good of a gift giver, then maybe you can trust him. Maybe you can trust him that he's actually going to give you everything you need. And I understand if you're sitting here and saying it doesn't feel like that right now. I, I, I can relate to that more than, more than you know. But Paul says if someone would give you a gift like that, then maybe you can trust that giver. And in Romans chapter 3 and in chapter 4, he has made the case that God, Christ for us, Christ in our place, Christ's death to cover our sin. If, Jesus, if God will give his son for that, then maybe we can trust that he will give us everything we need. Well, the second set of questions, uh, the verses 33 and 34, really, really similar questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And who is to condemn? So you, you look at those questions and you say, who can bring a charge against me? <laughs> uh, everybody? Lots of people? Everybody who's in close proximity to me? Anybody who has any sort of a relationship with me could bring a charge against me. I mean, that, that's pretty likely, uh, especially the people that are in closest proximity to me. The idea that I've wronged people, that I've, I've, I've treated people unfairly. Who, who could bring a charge against me? The list is long. A lot of people could bring a charge against me. Who is to condemn me? Are you willing to hold up your resume and say, who can condemn me? No, no none of us would be willing to do that, or at least we shouldn't. Remember the idea that everybody needs to be made right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? But see, Paul is basing this on the gospel news, the shocking gospel news. The gospel is good news, but the gospel includes really, really bad news. You know, the gospel actually starts off by telling us that we are way worse than we think. That our sin is far worse than we think it is. Our sin is so bad that someone had to die for it. And not just anybody, but the Son of God had to die for it. That's how bad the situation is. But then the gospel moves on to the good news. That as bad as my sin is, I am far more loved than I could have ever dared to hope. Because the one who had to die for my sin wanted to die for my sin. And so as Paul wrestles with these questions of who can bring a charge against God's people, who can condemn God's people, he looks at this gospel news and he says it's in spite of our sin that God saves us. When we realize our situation and we trust in God's solution of Christ, God forgives us. He wipes our slate clean. Now, yes, this is in a legal sense. But he literally takes all of our sin debt away so that the answer to these questions of who can bring a charge against God's elect, who can condemn God's people, the answer is nobody can do that. 
He actually indicates here the idea that maybe Christ could do that, but Christ stands in our place. Now you ask the question of, well, is this a future charging or is this a current charging? Is this, is this future tense or is this present tense? Honestly, I don't think it matters if it's future tense or present tense. I don't think it matters if Paul's talking about, can we be charged on the last day or can we be charged today? The message of the gospel is that when we've run to God in faith in Christ, that our sins are taken away. And the Bible actually says that they are put as far as the east is from the west. We talked about this a few weeks ago. But when, when, when you've come to God and you've had your sin forgiven, and then you fail again, and you come to God and you're like, God, I can't believe I did that again. God looks at you and says, again? What do you mean again? He's put our sin away. He's put it as far as the east is from the west. He has really actually forgiven us. And Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can't be condemned again. If you have run to Christ in faith, then Paul rightly says here in these verses, Who could ever bring a charge against you? Nobody. Look, anything that could ever be said about you, right now or in any day of your life, anything that could ever be said about you is already known by the God of heaven and he justified you anyway. He knows every single accusation. He knows every single uh, reality of your life. And he's the one who declared you right. Only Christ can make you right. Only faith in Christ will make you right. Who could condemn you? Man, I've done plenty of things that should result in me being condemned. But Jesus was already condemned for me in my place as a substitute. So all my actions, all my internal stuff, all my doubts, all my struggles, yeah, we still have to navigate them in the day-to-day -day life, but they have been fully dealt with in a legal sense to where when God looks at us, he actually, it's, it's crazy, but he actually sees us as holy. We have been made right. You look at verse 34. Jesus died for us. He was raised. And now he's at the right hand of God interceding for us. He stands as our representative. He covers us. And when God sees us, he sees Christ. So even though you are not a finished product, you are forgiven and you are eternally united to God. If you've run to Christ in faith, then you really can say, nothing I do can separate me from God. That is good news. Well, the last question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verses 35 through 39. You know, Paul gets really creative here in these verses. Uh, in in he, the list that he lays in front of us. It's, it's, it's quite creative. He, he touches on a lot of different angles. But his point is, the answer is nothing. Because it's not just who, it's what. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul's point in these verses is nothing can do that. So he lists out things. No trial, no distress, no famine, no need, no cancer, no tornado, no hurricane, no spiritual powers, no, no political parties, no stuff that I've dealt with. So any, anything in the past, 
Nothing in the past. And then you look to the future or to the present. Anything that I'm dealing with right now. And then you look to the future. Stuff I don't even know I'll be dealing with. None of it. None of it can separate me from Christ. You know, when you you think about that list of past tense, present tense, future tense, it can can make you break out a little bit in in a a cold sweat. Because you say, I I know kind of the, the crap that I've had to deal with. And I even know, like, the crap that I'm dealing with this moment. But, like, you're telling me? You're telling me there might be crap tomorrow? You know, some, some of us might feel like we've been blindsided recently. Some of us are going to be blindsided this week. Like, this is the nature of life on this earth. And it's terrible. But Paul says... That can't separate you from Christ. Can't separate you from his love. None of it. Nothing in all of creation can separate me from God. Are you part of creation? The answer is yes. You can't separate you. Who can separate you? What can separate you? Nothing. So think about this. Nothing done to me can separate me from God. But put, put those last two together. Nothing I do can separate me from God. Nothing done to me can separate me from God. Paul is like putting all of his chips in the middle of the table here. He's saying, if what I just wrote to you is true, here's the so what. Here's the outcome. Here's where we can sink our teeth into. Here's what we can hold on to. No action of yours, no action of others can separate you from the love of God. Of Christ. So if God is for you, then nothing can stand against you, nothing can condemn you, nothing inside of you or outside of you can separate you from the love of Christ. Paul is confident that nothing can do it because the fact that God loves us simply because He loves us. He loves us simply because He loves us. Reach back to verse 29. We talked about this a little bit over the last couple weeks and the idea that, that he foreknew. That, that means that before we were ever an active part of anything, God was at work. So if God was at work before we were an active part of anything, then that is a declaration that God's love for us is not based on our actions. And it's not based on our activity and it's not based on our current circumstances because his love is rooted in his activity before we were part of the mix. Before I did anything. You know, Tim, Tim Keller says it this way. God doesn't love you because of something in you. And boy, that is really good news because the stuff inside of me changes all the time. And God doesn't love you because of something on the outside of you. And that's good news because out here is changing all of the time. God loves you because of his eternal choice. He, he loves you just because he loves you. Like that might be disorienting for some of us. Some of us may think that we've earned it. Some of us may look in the rearview mirror and be like, man, look at the life I've lived. Look at the choices I've made. Look at the sacrifices I've gone through. Like, of course God should love me. Or I think I've put my best foot forward and he should love that. He should love my effort. You know, good old college try. Like you might fail 85% of the time, but you gave effort. 
That's not what Paul is saying. That is not where Paul anchors our hope. Paul anchors our hope for God's love on the fact that God loves us just because he loves us. How much would that change how you get out of bed in the morning? If you knew that, if you believed that, if you reminded yourself of that, and we've shared this idea a bunch of times, but deep down, everyone wants to be fully known and fully loved at the same time. We, we, want to be, we want people to know who we really, really are and to be fully loved. But we are scared to death that if we tell people who we really are, that they won't love us anymore. To, in order to, to keep their love, we've got to hide who we are. But think about what's going on in your relationship with God. God knows every single thing about you, and he loves you to the ends of the earth and back. Be of good hope, Christian. You are loved beyond your wildest dream. And if you're here today and you are not a Christian, boy, is there good news for you too. Just come. Just hear this good news. Everybody needs to be made right. Nobody can make themselves right. Only Christ can make you right. Only faith in Christ will make you right. And that door is wide open to anyone who will run through it. You, you don't have to do anything except give up. The same Christ who died on that tree to cover my condemnation will gladly cover yours. All you need is need. Or as one author puts it, all you need is need, but most people don't have it. Do you? Christ is waiting. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these verses. We thank you for these rhetorical questions that can leave us uh, scratching our head without the context. They can leave us demoralized, maybe even defeated. But we thank you for the whole story. We thank you for the whole picture of this gospel news that is at work in the world, that is at work in our hearts, that reveals to us this, this uh, scandalous message of a God who would actually come and in spite of our sin, rescue us back to himself. That he loves us just because he loves us. That he's that kind of a God, that he's that kind of a gift giver. God, would you help us to, to, to have the confidence to trust him with all the stuff that's happened to us, with all the stuff that's happening to us right now, with all the stuff that we don't even know, the stuff that's around the corner, the stuff that's coming. God, would you help us to trust you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.